Welcome to Losing a Child, Always Andy's Mom. On this podcast, we journey through the devastating experience of the death of a child. Grief is seldom discussed openly in our culture, and the death of a child makes people feel even more uncomfortable. We approach the topic openly and honestly, speaking to people who have lost loved ones and experts who help care for them. Whether you are a parent experiencing loss or someone who wants to support another going through this tragedy, this podcast strives to offer hope and help. Welcome to episode 211 of Losing a Child, Always Andy's Mom. I'm Marcy Larson, Andy's mom. Today, I have the honor to speak with Christine, Kurt and Austin's mom. I have to admit something to all of you right now. After losing Andy, one of my greatest fears is that I may lose another child. And that's exactly what Christine's reality is. She lost her son Austin at the age of 17 to a drug overdose, and then Kurt just a year ago in a similar way. Now you might think that Christine would just curl up into a ball after suffering both of these tragedies, but she hasn't. She's gone on to do some pretty amazing work in Canada, helping to prevent drug overdose. Before listening to her interview today, though, I want to take an opportunity to announce the next live stream. That is this coming Monday, October 2nd at 7.30 p.m. You know that I love all of my live streams with Gwen, but this one I am particularly excited about. This one I feel like has the potential to be our best episode ever. We are talking about being vulnerable in your grief and how when you do open yourself up to be a little bit vulnerable, even though it's scary, there can be some pretty amazing things that come from it. I've got some great stories to share with you, and I really hope all of you can come on Facebook or the YouTube channel and listen to it live. But if you can't, listen next week, because again, I really think it's going to be special. Right now, though, just sit back and enjoy listening to Christine, Austin and Kurt's mom. Thank you so much for agreeing to come on the Always Andy's Mom podcast. I'm really looking forward to talking to you today. Thank you, Marcy. It's good to be here. Absolutely. It's been a long time coming. We've we've scheduled and rescheduled because you've had a busy, busy schedule. But I know it'll be a good one because all of mine that I have all these scheduling conflicts with, it seems like once they come, I'm just so happy that we got it to work out. (laughs) Good. I'm glad to be here telling you. Yeah. So why don't you start out by telling us all about your boys because you have two boys to talk about today. I do. I do. Yes. Sure. So uh, my first son, Austin, he was my youngest and he would be 28. Wow. And yes. And Austin passed away at the age of 17. So it was 10 years ago. And it was, yeah, it was, it was just an absolute complete shock. But Austin was very much like me, Uh (laughs) to say that. And he was 
funny. He was quiet, but outgoing. And everyone really liked being around him. He was also the kid that helped everyone. Mm -hmm. And, you know, one of the weird things, the thing, one of the things that I learned after his passing was how little I knew his friends. Oh, my God. He had like hundreds of friends. Wow. They all had stories for me, which is so unbelievable because you never hear, you don't see that side of your teenager. Right. No, like there's a whole mystery. (laughs) And but to to learn that he was the kid, like that's let's say at a party where there's you know 50 kids, he'd be the one that would help a girl find her shoes. Oh he would he would sit down to the person who was alone on the couch and talk to them. Like he just knew how to in in the most subtle way connect with people. That's beautiful. Which is, I honestly didn't really know that about him. I like, I kind of thought he was just a little shit, you know? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So you taught him well, mama, without even knowing. I guess. I guess. Yes. So he was born on um, Boxing Day. So I'm Canadian. Mm -hmm. I live in Waterloo, Ontario. And. And Boxing Day is the day after Christmas. Is that right? Yes, it's the 26th. Okay. So he was born at about... Yes, I see. I've interviewed enough people yeah. from Canada and the UK that I'm starting to know this. But <laughs> as a general rule, I think most Americans have no idea what that That's is. That's right. So. That's right. So, and here it's a holiday. Like, everyone is off on Boxing Day. Um, but he was due on the 25th. And, and I was in labor on the 25th. And there was no way I wanted him born on the 25th. He was not going right. to share his birthday with Jesus. Yeah, <laughs> he was not going to be a, a baby Jesus. He was not yeah. going to give his life for others. And I mean, I'm thinking this during labor, <laughs> and I like so like I like held him in. I was like a deer and a wild deer, and I just held him in until ten after midnight. Ten after twelve, yeah. really? So there he was. So so people are telling you to push, and you're like, no, thank no. you. We're waiting. <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> He was like super shy when he was young, as was I, but he really, he was like athletic, which he didn't get that from me, but he, oh God, he was just such a sweetheart. And it's funny how you have moments that you remember. And there was a, there was a moment that I remembered just probably days before he passed where I was, he was standing at the counter in the kitchen and I was looking at him and I was just marveling at what a beautiful man he was becoming. Mm -hmm. Like, I still can feel that, you know, that feeling when you think and, and just looking at him and just like having like just such incredible love for him. Uh And it was as though, you know, it was almost like, I was soaking him in because I was going to lose him soon. Right. Which you had no idea at the time. No, absolutely not. It's so funny because I had a very similar experience about, it was just about a week and a half before Andy died. We were all, our family, our immediate family was watching fireworks in a boat. Mm -hmm. And we were all up in the bow and we were all up under blankets because it's cool here in Michigan, just like it is in in Canada and we were watching these fireworks in August and I remember thinking to myself cherish this moment Uh this moment is 
perfect with my family. And I was thinking that because I thought, well, a year from now, my oldest would be going to college. It may be the last time that we're all like that. But in fact, I feel like somehow it was like a gift to me Uh telling me to cherish this exact moment in time because 10 days later... Uh That's not what it would be. So yes. it, I feel like we had a very similar experience. Yeah. We're just like this just feeling of appreciate it, appreciate uh-huh. them, appreciate this family. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Yes. So one of the stories I like to tell about Austin, which to me just kind of sums him up at the age of 17 and, and which had a really profound impact on who I became because I, I did a complete, uh, 180 after he passed away in terms of how I identified myself, who who I am. Mm-hmm. At that time, we were living in a small town on the uh, outskirts of Waterloo. It was called Heidelberg. Austin's friends were scattered all over in the county because he went to a county high school. So friends were like everywhere, living on farms and small towns. All did a lot of driving. Mm-hmm. So he was at a party in February and my rule was always, call me anytime, any reason, yeah. no questions asked, I will come and get you. He was quite a homebody. He was known by his friends as someone who liked to, preferred to sleep in his own bed, but occasionally he had had sleepovers. But anyway, he was in um, at a party in another town, called me, can you come pick me up? Yep. So it's about two in the morning. It is a blizzard out we've got about a foot of snow on the highway and the snow is just blowing across because it's all fields cornfields and just just terrible horrendous conditions I'm in my pajamas and I always like one of these days something's going to happen and I'm going to get found in the ditch wearing pajamas and slippers in the middle of winter yeah (laughs) (laughs) but anyway I'm I'm driving to get them white knuckling it down the highway and as i'm driving down the highway my high beams they flash on someone walking on the highway in the opposite direction and my first thought is that idiot he's gonna get himself killed what's he doing walking in the storm on the highway yeah okay this is my gut opinion so i keep driving and then i uh, get to the party Austin gets in the car, we turn around, we start driving home. And the high beams, you know, they flick on the back of the person that's walking down the street. And I'm again, I'm being all judgmental, shaking my head to myself. And Austin says, Mom, stop. You know, we got to stop. And I'm like, why? <laughs> and he's like, yeah. well, we got to pick that guy up. I'm like, are you kidding me? Like, I'm going to pick him up. Yeah. Well, then what am I going to do? You know, we're in the middle of nowhere. He's like, Mom. He looks at me and it's, again, it's one of those moments where we just connected, looking at me, his ears, eyes piercing me. And he says, mom, that's what we do in the country. We help each other out. So I pull over and Austin gets out and he starts talking to this and it turns out to be a kid. He's like 14 years old. He lives eight miles from home and he's walking home. and Austin convinced him to get in the car and then realized that he actually went to Austin's high school. He was in grade nine. Austin was in grade 12. 
So I drove him home. It was really out of our way. He lived in this other town. But eight miles in a blizzard, he certainly may not have made it. Yes, but got him home safely. And then that's when it sunk into me. Like, here's my son who did the right thing. Hit me. Oh, it's going to interrupt my beauty sleep. I'm like, oh, I'm going to be like half an hour longer. I didn't put this person first or even second. Like, you know, that, and that's what the, mm-hmm. the gift really that Austin gave me in that moment was yeah. really the gift of community and what other people mean to you. And, and I mean, I have no idea. I never learned who this kid was. I'm sure his parents have no idea what happened, that sort of thing. But it happened, and it. And I was just so proud of Austin. Here he's coming home from a, a yeah. party. He's been smoking weed, whatever. and But he still has the right, the proper intentions. So he was, rather than mm-hmm. mom teaching him, he was really teaching me. Yeah. So that was in February. Basically, how did what happened to Austin? So he was he was a risk taker. He liked to party. He loved hanging out with his friends. One of the small towns near us is Elmira, and Elmira has the annual Maple Syrup Festival every every April, and it's a really big event. Mm-hmm. This was the year that Austin and his friends they were all going to sleep over at someone's house in Elmira get up at seven in the morning and go downtown and eat pancakes with tons of maple syrup. And that was like, doesn't that sound like great? But, you know, it's so sweet and innocent. (laughs) So yeah, absolutely, Austin, sleep at your buddy's house. I was so sure that night that everything was good, that he wouldn't want to come home or anything, that I left my phone charging in another room, which I never, ever do. I always had my phone next to me at night, but that night I didn't. Yeah. The next morning, we, my husband, my in-laws had just gotten home from Cuba. We all went out for breakfast with my older son, not far from Elmira. There was an odd little man there who came up to our table and was talking to us. And I remember being very agitated by him, like this strange little old man. And, and it's not related to anything, but there were things going on at that exact moment somewhere else. But I don't know. I, I've always felt a little odd about that little old man that was talking nonsensical to us. Anyway, we have breakfast. We go home and my husband and I are having another cup of coffee, just sitting there looking out the front window. And I see a police car on our street and we live in a little town. There's never any police cars on our street. Certainly not parked. Yeah. So I'm keeping my eye on him. Yeah. And in the meantime, we had driven my other son, Kurt, to uh, to work. So I then started seeing the, the police car pull forward. And he drives a few houses down, stops in front of our house. And it's just so, so clear to me. You know, it's like in slow motion. I see his foot, open, the door open, his foot land on the road. And I, I'm just, I'm just sinking. I know that something terrible has happened. And that moment, the phone rings. I run to the phone and it's my son, Kurt, just reminding me what time to pick him up from work that day. But oh, it's, it's not, it's not Kurt. 
it's got to be Austin. And it's yeah. just going through my mind. A car accident. What what could happen? So the police officer comes in and he said, you know, are you Austin's mother? We need you to get to the hospital immediately. He's on life support. I'm like, what? Wow. What has happened? And he, he says it's suspected drug overdose. My husband and I, we're just floored. We, have, we just get in the car. Yeah. As we're driving, the boat, it's about 15 minutes to the hospital. I, I call his friend who he was supposed to be sleeping over at. And I'm like, what happened to Austin? And he's like, I, I don't know. Nothing. I have no idea. He didn't sleep here last night. So it's like, oh, my God. Now what? Um, I said, they think it's a drug overdose. Do you have any idea what he could have taken? And she's like, no. Like, you know, we smoke, we smoke weed. Like, I don't know. So we get to the hospital and, and Austin, he was, oh, he was like six, four. He was just a big, tall, lanky kid. And he's on a chill mat. He's got wide tubes and wires coming out from absolutely everywhere. And uh, they explained to us that he was uh, in an induced coma. They wanted to allow his brain to rest and, and reduce the swelling in his brain. They figure he had been, well, they had to shock his heart to start in the morning. So an ambulance had only been called at seven in the morning. This was about 10 a.m. by now. So whatever had happened had happened in the night, but no one called paramedics. Wow. And he wasn't at the friend's house. He was somewhere else? No. So what had happened was his friend and his friend's girlfriend had were bickering and that sort of thing. And he got... Him and another friend got tired of it. So they went to the person's house where they bought weed. So for all intents and purposes, okay. a drug dealer's apartment. And who was all of 20 years yeah. old. So Austin's 17, the dealer's right. 20. And I guess it wasn't the first time Austin had hung out there. The, the dealer, he encouraged kids to come over and play video games and whatever. So Austin was there playing video games that right. night with a friend. And the dealer had about five or, yeah, five people come to the door, all in their early 20s. They came in and uh, they sat around at the table and one girl had stolen a bottle of morphine. So what the older kids had decided to do was snort, crush, snort the morphine. So the dealer, he was sociopath in my mind he just had a very psychopathic bent to him where he wanted to get austin and his friend involved in this so called them over come on come on come on have a have a pill with us so austin be kind of being a follower and um risk taker and trying to be cool like the older kids he did take why snort it And then the dealer decided to really mess with Austin and crushed another pill for Austin and held it up to him and told him to snort it, which Austin did. So it was at that point that Austin started exhibiting signs of overdose. He was um, sweating profusely. He was vomiting. He was falling unconscious. And they were doing all kinds of things they they put him in a tub with cold water they were researching online what to do in an overdose but the dealer threatened everyone 
that he would kill them if anyone called 911 or the police. So no one did. And because of their lack of knowledge about overdose, they kind of assumed that he would sleep it off and all would be well in the morning. So they they had enough sense to lay him on his side, like in the recovery position. And then they, they all went to sleep. So they're all in this one bedroom apartment, seven people sleeping. And then one person had to get up at uh, seven in the morning to go to work. And that's when she freaked out. She said, Austin looks like he's dead. He was purple, gray, ashen, purple lips, the dealer. Then he freaked out and he ran from the apartment. And then that's when everyone else, then they called 911. So at this time in the small town, there's like the biggest festival of the year going on. So fortunately, paramedics were at the available easily quickly came um they found him um he didn't have any vitals but they were able to shock his heart got a heartbeat got him to hospital and then he remained on life support for six more days until he he died naturally we during that time we knew that he was going to die so we were able to make arrangements for organ donation. And, you know, over that time, they said, like, his organs just healed. Like, they were so strong. Like, even though his heart had stopped for a period of time, yeah. over those few days, keeping him alive, everything was just so healthy. Yeah, He was just so, so full of life, basically. So he was able to save five people with his organs. Wow. Yeah, it was it was the uh, unbelievable time of life to sit in a hospital room for days watching your son and knowing yeah. he is going to die but we're keeping him alive so that the donors could be found cuz they're all over North America. Because you know, they have the registry. It's it's a fascinating process. If anyone's interested, I totally encourage everyone to yeah. sign their donor cards. And I know Austin would have wanted that. Absolutely. Like he. Right. Okay. right. And that in itself is such a beautiful thing. Like I was able to write to the people who received his organs. And like it's mm-hmm. it's confidential. But I got letters back. And I was able to, to describe Austin that he loves skateboarding and and hockey and mm-hmm. and one told me you know I I ride my bike now with my kids I never could do that and I go to the local skateboard park and I get my fill of of mm-hmm. watching the kids skateboard. Yeah, you know my foster son got a oh, kidney transplant yes. and we we exchanged mm-hmm. letters with the mom of the fourteen year old girl who died mm-hmm. to give him his kidney. So yes. Mm-hmm. I think about her so much differently yeah. now, though, mm-hmm. right? Because when we exchanged those letters, it was two years before Andy died. Oh, and then yeah. Andy died. And then I want, you know, I just think about yeah. her in a different way. Yes. Than I yeah. used to. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Certainly your perspective changes. So after Austin died, um, you know, I was off work. I think both my husband and I we were off for about three months and you know, it's just such a shock on the system and it's just so difficult. But I really, you know, I, I knew I had to make a decision. I, I'm either going to lay in bed for the rest of my life 
or I got to do something. And I just, I felt the need to do something. And I wasn't Mm -hmm. a doer in the past. I never volunteered. I just was a workaholic. I, uh, I worked in, worked in HR for many years. I just, I somehow found my voice and I, and I attribute it to Austin. Like I believe he, he does channel me and helps me. I think he gave me strength to do what I do and what I continue to do. But I started mm-hmm. like my, one of my, my biggest issues was the lack of knowledge about overdose, especially with Yes. Teens who are experimenting, who are doing who knew, who knows what. And it comes down to harm reduction. It's like, you know, if you're going to do it, do it safely. Right. Mm-hmm. So I was going into schools, telling Austin's story. I've had people from all over North America, all over the world. I've had people contact me and say they saw my story online and how it affected them and how they learned how to use a naloxone kit and how they've saved their friends. So I believe that Austin is helping people. He's saving people. And I go back to that, that mm-hmm. night he was born and was where I didn't want baby Jesus. Right. And I can't help but kind of like he died young and he, maybe there's a bigger purpose. Mm-hmm. And and I and I don't say that like if I heard someone else say that I would like roll my eyes. But <laughs> what happens to you? Right, I know. It was very funny because as you're telling this story, I was yeah. thinking about that. I was thinking about his yeah. birth and how you didn't want him on, born on Christmas so that he would be like giving yes. himself f- yes. for other people, and yet that's what you yes. that's what he did. Yes. It's like. You tried so hard not to push and you made it that 10 minutes and yeah. it didn't matter anyway because he still did, played that kind of role, didn't he? Well, yeah. And you how you really just don't have a lot of control. Because, I, I mean, he was a great kid. Did he do something stupid? Yeah. yeah. Was he in the wrong place at the sure. wrong time? Yeah. yeah. He, oh, this is horrible too. He phoned me that night. Remember I told you my phone was charging in another room? He had... Yeah. Wanted to come home. Apparently he called me at about 11 and I didn't hear my phone. Oh. So I live with, had, had this started to happen? Was he uncomfortable? Was he feeling pressured and wanted to get away? Want an excuse to leave? Yeah. We'll never know. Right. We'll never know. Right. But it's, you know, and I I learned, though, you gotta live in the moment. You know, I could drive myself insane living in the past. I could drive myself insane with mm-hmm. worrying about the what ifs and the what if I would have. And uh, I and I just, I've just learned to accept day to day and and the and the gifts that I have or the the memories that I. I have of Austin, the the pictures, the stories that his friends tell me, you know, it's, that's all we really have anymore. And all those what ifs, it, in the long run, it doesn't matter. It, yeah. It's hard to tell yourself that when you're thinking them, but. Yeah, absolutely. But in the long run, it doesn't. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So there's my other son, Kurt. Yeah. Three years older than 
Austin. Kurt was born on Mother's Day. Wow, you and you you like to have babies on holidays, huh? <laughs> I like the holidays, don't I? <laughs> yeah. Is, are those your two kids or do you have more kids than that? Yeah. Those are your two. Yeah. I was one of three. You know what? I always wanted three because okay. I was afraid. What if? Yeah. And I see, I never wanted an only child. And I just, uh-huh. if three was safety, safety in three. And my husband was like, oh, imagine having three car seats in the car. Two. It's very simple. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. So Austin, Kurt, Kurt was three years older than Austin. And when I was telling the story, Kurt was at work when all this happened and we didn't, we didn't call Kurt. We, we picked him up from, he was working at a grocery store. We picked him up at four that day and um, told him what happened. And we immediately went back to the, to the hospital so we could see his brother. And they were like, they were three years apart and we purposely spread them three years so that they would have their own lives. Mm-hmm. But they were so intermingled their lives. <laughs> they were best friends. Yeah. All of Kurt's friends loved Austin. All of Austin's friends loved Kurt. You know, and again, small town, everyone played together. And my kids, we had moved to Heidelberg when Austin was eight and Kurt was 11, but they introduced skateboarding to Heidelberg. My kids were the cool kids. They had the longer hair. They looked like Justin Bieber. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) They wore like rock t-shirts. And uh, so moving into this Mennonite community, they were just very, very popular. But anyway, just these two were were inseparable and they rarely fought. Like they didn't really fight they they got along but the one kind of issue that I see now is that with the age difference Austin was always trying to be like his brother he was always wanting to be in with Kurt and his friends who were maybe a little that little bit age gap um and Austin always being like a tall kid maybe kind of grew up a little quick or something yeah I'm not sure you know again I'm I'm thinking about the past. But anyway, we tell Kurt. And now we had already had drug issues with Kurt. So Kurt was very different from his brother, Austin. He was very quiet, very introspective, very sensitive, had a lot of anxiety. Mm-hmm. And so he probably started seeing a psychologist at around... 13, like in grade eight, what we were noticing was he was starting to uh, pull away from his friends and they would call and, you know, want to do things and Kurt would be saying no. And we're like, you know, if you keep saying no, they're going to stop calling, you know, how's that going to make you feel? And so he was going through like a, mm-hmm. a hard time. And then there was high school and um, just his shyness and his sensitivity we did learn he had inattentive ADHD he got diagnosed with that but he started he started using drugs when he was 15 well he started smoking weed and he he was very open with it he told me the story where he went on a ski trip with his class in grade 10 and he was up at the top of the mountain and one of his the people he went to school with said hey Kurt you want to smoke a joint and Kurt decided to he had never smoked smoked 
a joint before, but he said, mom, it was the first time in my life I felt comfortable in my own skin. Hmm. Like that's a recipe for disaster. That is a recipe for disaster. So from there, you know, like he was smoking a lot of weed and we were really the kind of parents where we didn't allow drug use in our home, on our property, which kind of just kind of the kids, you know, went to other places because he was so close with Austin. Austin's probably started smoking weed at around 13. Oh, yeah. Kurt then kind of progressed to pills. Oxycontin was around then, like it's no longer available, but at that time it it was. So anyway, between age 15 to 18, Kurt dabbled in drugs, but it was kind of, he was still doing well in school. He, sweetheart, very sweet kid, but he was, he seemed troubled. So then his brother dies. Yeah. Kurt was absolutely devastated at the loss of his brother. He felt it should have been him. He took full 100% responsibility for Austin's passing. He felt that he introduced Austin to drugs. He gets, gets worse. The person, the drug dealer was an acquaintance of our son, Kurt, from Kurt's high school. So that's how Austin even knew him. Mm -hmm. That person's last name was Kurt's, the drug dealer. Kurt's name is Kurt. Kurt couldn't stand his name any longer because he had the same name as the dealer's last name. It's just everything ate away at him like it's just torture torture for for kurt he progressed to heroin he started injecting we did everything we we've sent him to to rehab several times any type of alternative therapy you could think of it just over the 10 years it just became just harder and harder and harder for him to cope with life. He had moments where he wow. seemed a little bit better. He he actually went out to Banff, Alberta, and worked for oh, close to two years. Had a, had a fantastic time. It's such a beautiful area, and it's all kids who work in the hospitality industry out there. And had a great time. And then he falls down the stairs in a bar shatters his elbow, has to have surgery, and they give him a prescription for morphine. I call, as soon as I found out he was in hospital, I called the hospital. I said, he has substance use issues. He cannot be given an opiate. Canada's healthcare, you know, I don't know how it compares to the American, but basically you have no say as a parent, like with privacy it was like it's like win one ear out the other, right? Right. He quickly just gets right back. You know, by now things it's it's fentanyl, it's fentanyl, crack, and cocaine, meth. Wow. Things got really bad out west. We ended up having to fly out there and and bring him home. He found his passion after that. I think he was around twenty six or so, but he started working at the local 
CTS, which is um, Consumption Treatment Center. So we have safe injection sites here in Canada. And so he started working there as a peer support worker. And that's where he really discovered his love for working with people, the, the empathy that he had for others, others who consume drugs. Mm-hmm. He was amazing with people. Everyone there loved him. Could it be any of a any worse of an atmosphere for him, though, to sit there and watch people consume drugs all day? It was such a, like such a, a double-edged sword, like something he was so passionate about, but yet it was killing him because it just increased his drug use. And then he, he got onto the safe supply program. So here in Canada as well, we have safe supply, which is prescribed opiates to ensure that people are eating are consuming a clean supply. Okay. It's better than buying street fentanyl. Who knows what's in it? You know, the idea is that you consume your bean or your hydromorph, whatever you're prescribed, but it just with curd, it was just, there was never enough. His tolerance just kept increasing and increasing and increasing. Mm-hmm. And also that doesn't give you a good enough high. Like it's not the high that you get with street drugs because there's so many other things in it. So he was doing both like. Because it's supposed to probably just keep the withdrawal symptoms away more is what they're wanting. Yeah. 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 I like, the, I like, you know, I'm, I believe, I do believe there's a, time and a place for safe supply but um kurt was probably not the best candidate for it he was living with us at at one point we just we really couldn't have him in our house anymore he was overdosing all the time i was having to come home at lunch from work just to check him up on him i had all these checks and balances in place to make sure he's alive you know like i would get up in the morning i'd go downstairs make sure he's alive i'd go to work he'd have to call me by 10 a.m let me know he's alive. You know, it, like this was my life going on like this. Wow. Coming home, like not hearing from him and then racing home, finding him overdosing on the floor, calling an ambulance, going back to work for the rest of the afternoon. Like it was insanity. My life was insane. Just insane. Yeah. He decided to move out on his own and like in 2021. And I knew that was probably a death sentence. But he was 28. He needed his autonomy. He needed to live his life. It was such a hard, my God, it was just such a difficult, not really even a decision because it was his his decision. He's an adult. Right. He moved into a very tiny apartment alone and he was there for 11 months. And I think for the most part, he had a really good time. He felt independent. He didn't feel like he was under our thumb. He was very close to the CTS where he worked. So he was able to to work there when he could. He discovered art. He had an art room. He just produced so much beautiful art. Just gorgeous, meaningful, deep artwork. He was a writer. I have bins of journals because he started journaling at about 15. And wow, there's so much pain in those journals that yeah. when he died of an overdose, January of 2022, it was a little bit of a relief because he was at peace. Mm-hmm. He was with his brother. Mm-hmm. 
how do you say that though as a parent that I never gave up on him? I never mm-hmm. allowed him to think for a minute that he couldn't beat this. But I question how right. he was ever going to beat this. This addiction. Horrible, mm-hmm. horrible, horrible, horrible thing to watch someone fade away like that. He wasn't alone. You know, the God, like, for what happened to Austin, who could ever think that that could happen again in the same family? So he's with a person in his apartment, a, a girl who was crashing at his place. I don't, I, I really, I know far more about what happened with Austin's death because it actually was a criminal uh, investigation and the jailer was convicted of manslaughter in Austin's situation. Yeah. With Kurt, the other people in the apartment building heard like yelling and screaming. They said that they sounded like someone was being murdered and they called the police because they didn't know what was going on. That. When someone's overdosing, Kurt wouldn't be yelling and screaming. Like I have no idea what was happening. I still don't know. I will never know. Um, yeah. This girl, she did not call 911. Wow. Yeah, there's so many questions there. I question what the police did because they didn't call paramedics. They just pronounced him dead and called the coroner. How can your son survive for six days after having no vital signs? And then Kurt, yeah, yeah, we we think he's been dead an hour. He didn't try to do anything. Yeah. Wow, that's that's hard. Yeah. Yeah, that is hard to take. But I have to look at, you know, what happens and. You know, it's, it's, I have to move on from this and I could drive myself crazy if I think about this too much. But so I, I, I try for my own sake, I try to focus on the positive, which is kind of being at peace. I have no idea what happens after you die, but I do, I believe that there is another spiritual realm and that they are together, him and his brother. And they're skateboarding somewhere for eternity. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I just need to continue to help others who are struggling. And and that's one of the reasons why I, in the past year I went to work at a shelter, a homeless shelter for men. Mm-hmm. Again, I just I just understand that pain. And nobody asks for this. You know, no one wants to be addicted to drugs. It's not a pleasant life. No. It's a all-consuming search for drugs. Like it's, it's a horrible, yeah. horrible life. But and I, I said I was going to mention to you. So we're recording this on uh, in August, and uh, August thirty-first is International Overdose Awareness Day. So I've been heavily involved with that that event, which is recognized throughout the world organizing an event uh, locally here. I have a feeling this is my last year. You know, it's like I've kind of come to the end of my, this chapter. I'm exhausted. I'm exhausted from promoting harm reduction and overdose awareness. Right. It takes a lot out of you. I was involved in getting the Good Samaritan Act updated in Canada, which allows... 
some immunity to those who call 911? Because the fear is, oh, I'm going to call 911. Police are going to come and they're going to arrest me. That's why people don't call, right? So in Canada here, we, right. I worked with a politician. I went to Ottawa, spoke before our Senate, got this bill passed, which would provide some immunity. Uh, like if they had a personal quantity of drugs, they would not be arrested. And hopefully communities, for the most part, police officers in an overdose situation would turn a blind eye to what is going on and just deal with it as a medical emergency, which is what it is. There's still a ways to go with that. Mm-hmm. but yeah I'm trying to figure out what's next in my life I'm going to be 60 this year I still I can't work full-time I I just don't have the brain capacity yeah just too hard I just I'm exhausted yeah the day of of Kurt's memorial my 92 year old mom moved in with my husband and I <laughs> I'm now caregiver for her mm-hmm. yeah you never know what life brings do you yeah. No, you sure don't. And it's so often, I mean, like in our cases, it's just completely unexpected and not what uh-huh. you thought was going to happen no. in a million years, right? And all the hopes and dreams that you have, you know, what are they going to be when they grow up? You know, Austin's friends are getting married. Kurt's friends, you know, they're having kids. They've bought houses. They have cars. They yeah. completed their education. There's so much to look forward to. And I've got to find my my reality. What brings me joy? What What's going to keep me going for the next 30, 40 years? Whatever I have left. Maybe I have a day. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's interesting for you to bring that up because I was just talking to a mom who would, the episode would have aired last week about kind of trying to find some purpose mm-hmm. because she just didn't know what to do. Mm-hmm. And it had only been a few months for her. And and yeah. she just felt so lost as to what mm-hmm. what is my life now. And it's, I think, a bit comforting to know in some ways that you don't need to figure that out right away. Yeah. And that you've been certainly a work in progress. And you've been doing a lot. I mean, you say you're still finding that purpose now. And I'm sure you are still doing that. But there's a lot you have been doing already, even between Austin's death and Kurt's death, right? Absolutely. Like, I've been really, really busy. And that's how I dealt with my grief, though, was I and, and I and I am first one to admit, that everyone is so unique in how they deal with their grief. Yes. For me, I found I had to find purpose and I had to make a difference. I had to make, that's how I made sense of it. Yeah. It's by giving back, by just pr- trying to help others or prevent anyone else from going through what we've gone through. Like if we could prevent one person, yes, it's worth it. Right. Right, just preventing one overdose or mm-hmm. one. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you talked a little bit about this. Is it CTS that you said? Safe consu- Yeah, it's a safe consumption site. Yeah. See, I've never heard of this before. Oh, okay. Okay. So I think there are probably others that don't know what this is either. Mm-hmm. So and because you volunteer there too now or no, just that's what Kurt did. That's what Kurt did. 
what I do now is I work at a men's shelter that has a safe consumption program within it. So within it. Okay. Again, people are going to use drugs. Mm-hmm. Okay. It's a harm reduction approach, meaning that they're going to do it anyway. So let's give them a safe space to do it. So what a CTS would do is it gives them a clean, hygienic environment to do it. They're supervised by nursing staff, peers, other workers. If something happens, um, they're provided with clean supply of needles, wound care, if required, Uh counseling options. And the intention is, is that when you're ready to make a change, you can do so. But it's about keeping you alive, keeping you safe until that time comes. So that's their ultimate goal yes. is to be able to get them to the point where they may want to try to stop. That's right. That's right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I just, it's just something that I'm just not familiar with really at all. So. Yeah. And I mean, there's, there's a lot of people who are, are very, very against them, who, who it makes no sense whatsoever. But when, when you think about the number of people most people die of an overdose alone. Mm-hmm. You know, once you start overdosing, there's nothing you can do. Right. Okay. So one of the important things is never use alone. Have a naloxone kit or in the States, I think you call it uh, Narcan mm-hmm. and um, clean supplies of needles. Well, and you are right. The number of people that I've talked to that have died because of what they took was not what they thought it was mm-hmm. or not what. It was said to be, Mm -hmm. that's pretty scary too. Absolutely. Yeah. You have no idea what, what the strength, like, like with fentanyl, like you could have what may appear like a a tablet or a chunk of, it almost looks like a huge salt crystal, let's say, but there's just like a little dust speck of fentanyl in that. Mm -hmm. And the rest is filler and you get too much of the fentanyl and, and you're dead. You like you just don't know. You have no idea about the quantity of what you're taking. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No idea. And when you talk about tolerance and things like that, you know, I, I've seen a couple different things. One is you see kids that it's one of the very first times they've used it mm-hmm. and they get it from somebody who has built up quite a tolerance Yeah, and suddenly they're the ones that die because they don't have it. Or even when you've been clean for a while. Yes. Yes. And you have that one time when you relapse a little bit. Well, Mm -hmm. you don't think this is not something that you have had a problem with that amount in the past. And you've needed that amount in the past to get what you wanted for the effect. Mm -hmm. But now this time your body doesn't handle it. So, it's just so incredibly dangerous. And, you know, we, I, I talk to this about this all the time. They like your brains are not fully mature until you're like yeah. 26 years old. So you make, and sometimes not even then, but so yep. many of the times these decisions start being made at such young ages mm-hmm. that you just don't have that capacity to think about what could happen really. Yeah. And that's why I don't understand why there isn't more drug education in schools. Like they need to be starting early. 
And I mean, it's not, Mm -hmm. you know, it's not the just say no thing. It's really understanding the harm like that it can do and really like helping, helping kids make wise decisions. So when I was going in and talking to kids in high school, I was telling Austin's story and then I would ask them like, what would you do in the situation? What would you do if a drug dealer told you, I'm going to kill you if you call 911? Yeah. And so with the clarity of mind, because you're, you're not high, you're, or uh, you haven't been drinking, like make this plan ahead of time. Because I believe if you think the thoughts that you think will stay with you. Right. And, and, and you know, like think about scenarios and we would actually do role playing and that sort of thing and getting them to say like, Oh, I would never listen to him or I would just leave. And I would, I would call like everyone's got a phone. How could someone influence someone that much, you know, mm-hmm. but having them in a safe environment, come up with these ideas. You know, they talked about dragging Austin like into the parking lot and then calling and running away. Like, great. That would have been fantastic. Right. Not, you're not thinking, you know, you have to, if you're gonna play dangerously, you gotta have some plans in place. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think too, about just teenagers that I see in the office who just are tell me, oh, it's just a little weed. Uh-huh. Oh, I just smoke a little weed. And I tend to have conversations with them about, well, smoking a little weed makes you make some pretty bad decisions. Uh-huh. Let's talk about the bad decisions that you might make when you're high, just smoking yeah. a little weed. Right. Uh-huh. And so having some of those conversations like now having unprotected yeah. sex and getting a sexually transmitted disease or getting uh-huh. pregnant or getting someone else pregnant. I mean, those are consequences from just a little right. weed. Getting behind the wheel of a yeah. car and driving and now getting in a car accident, uh-huh. killing yourself, killing someone else. Those are consequences of just a little right. weed. So uh-huh. I think those are conversations that I certainly like to have uh-huh. with kids because they do tend to really just downplay yeah. it as this is just a normal thing and it's not going to hurt anybody Uh and it's not going to do anything. Right. So those, and I don't think that's the approach of a lot of people and I wish it would be is, is thinking about decisions that you then go on Uh to make. Right. Right. And lots of that stuff happens too. And then that's, I think when they make, decisions like oh let's t- try this pill because now you've had just a little mm-hmm. weed and now you make the decision of to take the pill that you probably or maybe you would have made a totally different choice had you not you know had you been in a different mindset mm-hmm. so it's 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 hard but that's why having some of those conversations when they are not yes. high is so, so important because if you say, this is where I'm drawing the line, Mm -hmm. then maybe you'll remember it. That's right. Even when you're high. Yeah. And I I think taking up the peer pressure is really, really important too. you know, because even finding ways of, okay, how can I get out of this? If I'm not comfortable learning to say no or learning to kind of respect yourself. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. And even having some of those conversations on this is why I say no. You're like, you know, I really want to stay on the basketball team. And if I start doing this, I'm going to get tossed off. So when you have an excuse to be able to tell someone right away, Mm -hmm. 
that's helpful too. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And again, those are good conversations to have as opposed to just, you know, like you said, the just say no thing. It's, Mm -hmm. that's easy for us to say, just say no. But in the moment when you're feeling pressured from someone else, you having an excuse and being able to call your parents to come get mm-hmm. you or having an excuse like, man, coach would be so mad mm-hmm. or whatever. I, it would, it's, it takes a little bit of pressure off of them to be able to put it on right. someone else. Yes. But one of the other concerns I have is the amount of anxiety in our kids oh, today. Yes, for sure. For sure. Where does that come from i don't know i don't know if it's like social media something in the water who knows but it just seems to be an incredible amount of anxiety out there and then coping mechanisms and it's self-medicating yes no question like like i said like with kurt said like first time he smokes weed very first time i felt comfortable in my own skin like can you imagine what it would be like to have never felt comfortable with who you are yeah. until that moment? And of course, then you're going to want it again. Of course. It's a, it's the answer. It solved yeah. a problem. I will never forget having an eighth grade girl that I was seeing and her having done heroin. And she said it was the best feeling she'd ever had in her whole life. And if it was in the exam room with us right then, she would do it right, right then. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. She had done it, I think, two times at that point in time. And her parents were at wit's end. They didn't know what to do. I mean, it was just, it was all hands on deck. We're all panicking. And and that was her response to me. It was the best thing I've ever felt in my life. Mm-hmm. I know it's bad for me. I know it's awful. But it was amazing. Mm-hmm. That's scary. That's terrifying, actually. That really is. So how do you, how do you delay gratification? Like when, when... We have everything at our disposal at any one time. So when you have a feeling like that, I don't I mean, it was really hard for me. I didn't know what yeah. to do. I really didn't know what to mm-hmm. do. She was coming in and she, they were taking, she, mom was taking a leave of absence from work to not let her alone, but that can't go forever. Right. Mm-hmm. Really, really hard. Yeah. Wish we could have solved this problem today, but we certainly can't. Don't think so. But what we can do is just offer love. Yeah. Yeah. And offer, offer love, love, love to our kids and to people who are suffering. Yeah. And, you know, and I go back to the Austin and his caring about other people. See, and I know mm-hmm. if Austin had been the one in the room, with his friend overdosing, he would have found a way to call 911. Yeah. He would have done it. Yeah. Oh, no question. I mean, just from what you tell me about him, there's no question he would have. So it's, it's, it's instilling that too. You know, it's just instilling that sense of empathy, compassion, and community for those around us. And that's, Mm -hmm. so for example, that girl, no, we're her friends. Like, you know, those are the people, too, that can have an impact on that mm-hmm. girl and would probably find out that she was lacking with real friendship, possibly. 
Well, I, I mean, I, I wouldn't doubt it because I know she was having troubles. And so what did the parents do? Pulled her out of that school, put her in a different one. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. I mean, which is what you try because you think that's a bad influence. We'll try a different school and hopefully she'll get the good friends there. But it's hard. Mm -hmm. It's hard when you're struggling. It is. So hard. Well, thank you so much for sharing your boys today. It's a tough, tough story for sure. Thank you, Marcy. I really appreciate it. Yeah. And I do appreciate what you're doing and trying to, you know, help as many people as you can. Well, I think, you know, by you allowing us to come on and, and share our stories, it you're helping us, you help me, we help each other. You know, you're doing a fantastic thing. And again, it's your loss, too, that has brought this out in you. So thank you. And thank Andy. Right. That's what we have to do. Because without Andy, yeah. this wouldn't happen. Yeah. And that's what we do. That's what we do, right? We keep our kids with us and do things to try to help other people with our kids. Mm-hmm. So thank you. Thanks for listening. If you found this helpful and would like to support the podcast, please leave a five-star rating and comment. To help financially, you can text Andy's Mom to the number 53555 or visit the donate page on andysmom.com. Your donations are secure and tax-deductible, and we are now able to accept Venmo, PayPal, and Apple Pay. Always Andy's Mom is a registered 501c3 organization and can receive donations through smile.amazon.com, Thrive in Financial, and Benevity, amongst others. Marcy loves hearing from listeners. Please feel free to reach out to her via email at marcy at andysmom.com. Also, be sure to sign up for the email list to receive weekly updates as well as pictures of all of Marcy's guests and their children. Together, let's work to inspire hope one day at a time.